Hello everyone, it's November 3rd, 2020. This week we gotta talk about that water found on the moon, and frankly, how that's even possible. Then there's the Osiris Rex sample return saga. Well, things are going well now, it's it's hardly a saga, but nonetheless, still worth talking about, so let's do it and lift off. Anyway, we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 283 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, um, congratulations. This week we are approaching the 20th uh, anniversary of uh, humans not being in space. Mm. That's, a, that's a weird way to, to word it. Um, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the 2nd of November, which is what the day before the show comes out, it, it's the anniversary of the of Expedition 1 beginning on ISS. And since Expedition 1, we've had um, continuous human presence in space. So this is uh, it's 20 years. Um, and thanks to Ben Hallert in the Discord chat uh, earlier today, uh, p- pointing this anniversary out. It's it's crazy. We're we're in the space era, and you know we 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 see the threat of um, discontinuous human presence in space coming up. But you know, as far as we know right now, it, we are in the space era, and we will always have people off of the surface of Earth. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good run, and I don't want to see it broken. You know, yeah. like it's not like it's five years; it's twenty years. Right. So. It'd be a shame. So you said it was 20 years of humans not being in space, and I guess I see what you mean there. But it's, you meant it's the anniversary of yeah. Right. <laughs> but I figured in order for it to be the anniversary, I guess it still is. Wouldn't there have to be a human or humans not in space now? Because oh then gosh. it would be I, I, you know okay, a milestone. All right, all right, It's the anniversary of that being broken. It's the anniversary of that not being an anniversary. I like Ben's anniversary. Yeah. Anniversary. There you go. <laughs> Direct lunar water has been observed, and this really, um, I guess this is just as much a talk about Sophia, the telescope on a plane, which always looks funny to me because it looks like kind of what you'd expect, like, you know, a parachutist to do. Like, it's like a telescope that doesn't jump, but it just kind of like sits there at the opening of the doors, and then you just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like a Wiley Coyote type of a thing. It's very cool that this even works and that they can make these kinds of observations. Hmm. This is a discovery of water in a place where no one really expected it, and we're still not sure exactly how it's even there. I mean, there's some work theories, but I guess we don't know yet, huh? And so we're just going to have to do some kind of a sample collection mission, perhaps? I mean, I think that'd be neat. Well, we got people heading there, but (laughs) they're not quite to this location. So I I put this in the show notes because it's exciting, but it's less exciting than most people are interpreting it to be. And, uh, And also, I was seeing um, discussion about how this is unlikely to actually um, affect the the Artemis program. So don't get your hopes up about um, about getting samples. Um, but Dennis, this this is right up your alley. So I'm going to let you take it. So what the a lot of times we'll joke about, you know, water being discovered on different planetary bodies or in you know the solar system or space many times <laughs> for a given body. And so this is once again uh, lunar water water discovered on the moon. But the uh, the context is always different each time they report it, right? And so in this case, um, right, like David talked about, this is Sophia, the uh, uh, space-borne uh, telescope, um, or sorry, an airborne telescope. That's what I mean. <laughs> I'm so used to talking about space on the show. It's an airborne telescope, right? It's on a, a modified 737. It flies, you know, in the pretty high, like 45,000 feet or something like that. That gets above um, 
water vapor, and so you can do a lot more uh, infrared uh, observing there. So that's what the uh, the I in SOFIA stands for. Uh, the I8 is infrared astronomy. The logic is kind of there that even though they've never looked at the moon before, um, this would be a great telescope with good instruments for doing that because, uh, after all, if there's you know transitions at a certain wavelength uh, for water uh, on the moon, then you're not going to be able to see that from the ground on Earth because kind of by definition, the water in the atmosphere is going to be brighter and kind of swamp out that signal in principle. And so um, uh, this was a six micron uh, uh, emission that was seen in particular uh, by Sophia. And it was in the crater Clavius. And like I said, right, this is the first time that um, they weren't even sure if it was going to work, but they decided to kind of aim, you know, Sophia's telescope at the moon, uh, which I guess is kind of a way of aiming the, uh, the whole airplane at the moon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> picking up the particular flight uh, trajectory to allow that to happen. And so this is a wavelength, right? You can't see it from the ground at all. And um, we've talked about water on the moon for a while now, right? In fact, this is something that's brought up every time, you know, they talk about Artemis and the, you know, future uh, ecosystem, you know, and you know, around the, the South Lunar Pole. But those were all, uh, you know, detecting a, uh, a transition of water at three microns, which uh, also, you know, can't be done from the ground. But um, what's, I guess, uh, less exciting about that one is that you can't distinguish between uh, proper water, right, H2O versus uh, uh, hydroxyl. Uh, uh, ions, I guess. Are, are they ions? I don't know if they're what, what you call it, a little chunk like that, but uh, OH, essentially, right? You're, you're missing one of your hydrogens, essentially. And so uh, that, you know, could play a big role in terms of, you know, how would you approach uh, ISRU on the moon? And so understanding whether or not, you know, what form the water is in, you know, is important. I, I had no idea about this. You know, th the other spacecraft that, you know, uh, had seen, you know, evidence for water on the moon, right? So something like, you know, the lunar, you know, reconnaissance orbiter L crosses impact that, right? You just talked about a few weeks ago as a this week in spaceflight history. But did you know that uh, Cassini apparently eyeballed some, uh, some water on the moon? Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I had no idea, but that, that was mentioned. And I, I didn't look that up in any more detail, but, you know, presumably, you know, it, it got within eye shot of the moon and they trained some of their instruments on it and were able to pick up the three micron uh, uh, transition line. In any event, uh, what makes this, you know, not as uh, revolutionary as, you know, it's being reported, presumably, but um, still cool is that this is the first time six micron emissions been seen, and that's a H2O water transition. That's cool there. And there they look this Clavius uh, crater where if you look at the Tycho crater, right, the one with the huge rays kind of sticking out on it uh, near the southern part of the moon, it's just south of there. So it's still really south, but it's at a lower latitude than kind of, you know, the poles, right, where, you know, Artemis is going to be aimed for in particular. So we're talking about water in a different context than what, you know, the Artemis program and these perpetually shaded craters um, on the moon uh, that harbor harbor water. What's the other kind of bit that's exciting about this in terms of identifying that it's proper H2O is that this is also not a permanently shadowed crater. And so it's kind of a proof of, you know, it's a demonstration that evidently uh, even within, you know, sunlit regions of the moon, you know, at this, again, still quite an extreme latitude on the moon, uh, still a pretty high latitude, uh, that you can have water there. And so uh, as far as, you know, theories of how, you know, the water could survive, right, the moon gets quite hot during the lunar days, um, is that if it's being uh, delivered by uh, meteorite impacts, then, um, you know, there could be... Uh, during the impact, right, the shocked, the now shocked meteorite could, you know, essentially encase 
the water within these kind of glass beads. The the meteorite material, not the lunar regolith that's already there? Good question. Uh, not sure. I mean, it's, at some point, they're indistinguishable, right? So, <laughs> Right, right. So, because when you talk about meteorites on Earth, um, there's both, you know, there's things that aren't really meteorites, but they are melted, essentially shocked mm. parts of the native soil, right? So the Earth mm-hmm. um, being shocked, uh, those have a, a, a name, it escapes me right now. But anyway, but then also there's a melt when it comes, like, you know, as it passes the atmosphere that can encase it. Now, in that case, um, that melt, you know, that couldn't happen on the moon. So anyway, this was just me kind of talking my way to a tentative answer, which is I think it's native lunar regolith that would be shocked and then able to encase the water that was brought from elsewhere. That's my guess based on that. So yeah, also, you know, maybe just, you know, they're embedded within uh, lunar grains uh, more generally, just however they're getting there. Uh, it could be that they uh, come from the solar wind as well. Hydrogen from the solar wind uh, interacts with the lunar regolith and, you know, gets you hydroxyl, which then maybe gets you water or, you know, some kind of... Uh, formation pathway there. Uh, but that's, you know, not known at this point. These are just, you know, a few ideas that are being thrown out. But it's really cool because, you know, it's it's a proof of concept that um, you can have, at least in some locations on the moon, uh, a water uh, where it isn't always uh, in the dark. And so, at least for me, this, this strikes me as analogous to the permafrost that Phoenix saw at high latitudes on Mars, where you can kind of, you know, do we extrapolate that to lower latitudes on Mars that there's, you know, the subsurface ice kind of all over the surface of the planet? And, you know, I, you know, we, we just don't know at this point. And so really cool. But yeah, so this is uh, this was actually one of two papers that popped up in Nature Astronomy related to uh, um, the moon and uh, water there. Another one uh, was analyzing some uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter data. And uh, basically, this uh, I hadn't read the paper, but it sounds like it must be more theoretical because their their big takeaway was that water ice could be stable in much colder, uh, much smaller cold traps uh, near the lunar poles. So this is the kind of water ice that we've been talking about for like a decade now, right? Which would be really cool because maybe then that means there's going to be higher abundances at these sort of, you know, polar regions that Artemis uh, and other, you know, nations are targeting. Yeah, really cool stuff. Uh, there's, you know, water on the moon. Finally, this this kind of, you know, I think they swung for the fences with this one because, like I mentioned, right, the people that had this study didn't really know whether it was going to work. They hadn't looked at the moon for this transition before. But uh, Sophia, you know, its future is a bit uncertain. It's the second most expensive NASA astrophysics mission, right? So the the science mission directorate at NASA right, is split into all the different, you know, divisions. There's heliophysics, planetary science, astrophysics, and others. And in any event, when it comes to, you know, the astrophysics side, you know, it's really, you know, Hubble and then Sophia. But Hubble churns out results like none other. You know what I mean? And then there's a lot of ground-based observatories that churn out results much, much higher than Sophia. In fact, if you looked at this, some group of like almost 30 different, you know, space and uh, terrestrial observatories, uh, in terms of, you know, citation impact, Sophia came dead last. Um, so there's been these internal reports, mm. there's been non-internal reports. And so a lot of reviews as for the history of this, you know, or rather the future of this, you know, this mission. And so while it's really cool, it's something that, you know, people need to do some reckoning and thinking about in terms of, you know, uh, funding it. Because it's tens of millions of dollars uh, per year for what might not be the output that you'd 
hope for. Um, at the same time, though, uh, and this kind of reflects, this is true also in particle physics, it's doing something that you can't do with anything else. So if you want to probe that parameter space, you do need to pay that extra money. And so then it's still a question, is it worth it? But there's not really, you know, another way to do these kind of uh, measurements uh, at this time. And so NASA actually proposed terminating it in their 2021 funding proposal, but Congress rejected that and chose to fund it. Uh, Senate has been agnostic yet, or rather, they just haven't released their uh, proposal. But um, hopefully there will be a way to, I don't know, get costs down or get productivity up or do both at the same time. <laughs> That's kind of my hope. Fingers crossed for that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? It's not the only telescope we put on a plane. It's it's the successor of one, uh, the Kuiper that we launched uh, or flew in the 70s uh, through 90s. But it's still really, it's it's awesome. It's unique. And you can do things, again, from there that you can't do elsewhere from the ground. Just to go back for a second, just to put um, the water on the moon in context or to give it some, I guess, uh, terrestrial context. According to the article that we're referencing here, it's about 12 ounces of water per cubic meter. And on Earth, that would be extremely dry. In fact, I think it's like drier than anywhere you could find on Earth. So we're not talking about a lot of water. Just to yeah, be clear. Anytime you're yeah. measuring something in parts per million, you're... Yeah, I missed the, yeah, I missed that bullet. But yeah, this is like 100 times drier than the Sahara. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. so let's translate on over to another topic one we talked about, I guess, last week. Uh, and that yeah. is OSIRIS-REx. We have a we have an update on the sealing of that sample that, uh, what's it called? Taxam. So it, mm. it looks like, you know, that they were able to get it... Uh, so I don't know if they screw it on or they latch it on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just a quick terminology refresher. The SRC is the sample return capsule. Um, and that's where TAGSAM uh, is going to sit for its ride home to Earth. And so last week we were talking about how TAGSAM had collected too much <laughs> regolith or at the very mm -hmm. least um, too large of regolith particles and some of those one-way uh, valves were stuck open um, due to uh, particles of regolith up to a centimeter uh, in diameter. Um, and so, yeah, the, the idea is to um, deposit the sample head inside the SRC. And what's really cool is they actually have a camera dedicated to this task. It's called Stocam. Um, and it looks straight at the at the SRC from the side. And like you said, uh, David, it does uh, latch in there. It doesn't screw. That would involve so much additional complexity. Um, there's a, there's a, a a latch ring that the sample head clicks into. And once they've done that, um, they have switches inside there that can tell them that they have bottomed out on the capture ring, um, but it doesn't really tell them whether the latches have closed sufficiently to actually capture the head. And, you know, as you can imagine, you don't want the head rattling around inside your SRC when it's coming back through the atmosphere. So they actually perform a, a maneuver that they called the backout check, where they um, tug on the head to make sure that it doesn't move. Um, they, they back the arm out. And so last week we were talking about how there was the possibility that it wasn't going to latch properly. And it's actually kind of interesting. Um, even in the best case scenario, they expected to potentially have to try this a couple times where the backout check would fail and they'd have to go back in and try to get, um, try to get that latch to, to close properly. Um, but in this case, not only did they um, not have to do the normal number of attempts, they actually did it in one shot. So no issues worked better than expected. Just, 
fantastic. Um, and then of course they, uh, detach the sample head. I was looking for some information on what those, um, sever mechanisms look like. Um, but it, it sounds like they're just explosive bolts and a pyrotechnic tube cutter to cut the, uh, the nitrogen line. I'm not a hundred percent sure that the line cutter is pyrotechnic, but it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's a good way to do things. Um, so they successfully, um, stowed the sample head in the SRC. They successfully cut the nitrogen line and, and, uh, separated the arm. And then, um, uh, there's actually this fantastic gif of them closing the lid, as it were, um, sealing the, uh, the sample head inside the SRC. Um, and it, it's really cool because it's not a simple hinge. It, it hinges closed, uh, it hinges closed and then, uh, it actually settles down. So like the hinging would be like a rotational movement and then it actually settles down in this longitudinal translational movement. It's, mm. it's really nice. It, it makes me, uh, it makes me want, I don't know maybe a, a cabinet door that uses this, um, <laughs> whatever the, um, the linkage, uh, setup is it. That's really nice. So last week we talked a little bit about, um, how they were losing, uh, regolith from the sample head and how they wanted to, um, move to the stow operation as quickly as possible, skipping the massing operation where they would extend the arm out and, uh, spin the vehicle. Um, to do uh, um, an ice skater style measurement of the uh, angular uh, inertia contained in that in that regolith. So of course they they skipped that. Um, and not only did they skip it, but they actually jumped to their stow operations early, um, a, a week or two early. Um, and there's a, a good quote in uh, the Space News article that's linked in the show notes from uh, Lori Glaze, the director of Planetary Science Division at NASA. And she said that a lot of last minute renegotiations with several missions had to take place because they had to kick them out of their uh, time slots on the Deep Space Network so that they could communicate with Osiris Rex um, ahead of schedule. And, and again, mm -hmm. that's, that's like a week or two ahead of schedule to, to do this. And that's always fun when reality impacts on, on your schedule. And it's a high priority thing. You're already losing uh, material. Now, um, speaking of, of uh, material loss, they were able to directly image uh, the sample void, right? Um, they're able to see about 17% of that area inside the head. Um, and so they were able to confirm about 400 grams of material has been captured. Now, again, that's only partial uh, imaging. They still believe they have in excess of one kilogram worth of sample. Um, they want to get a better mass estimation before they get home. Um, and um, Dante Loretta, uh, the PI, um, talked about using alternate methods, but I, they didn't talk about them specifically. Um, I, I think uh, we can fairly safely guess that it's going to have to do with um, known thruster firings and then careful measurement of the resultant delta V. Um, to see just how much extra they have on board. Well, one thing that I think that he did mention was that they might be able to look at past telemetry and actually infer how much mass they have because they had to move the arm. And so that will actually, you know, cause, you know, the spacecraft to move. And so, I mean, that not, seems reasonable. Not I don't only know that, it's... but they might be able to look at the power draw from the arm and say, well, mm -hmm. I know it normally takes 
this much mm. current to move the arm this distance. That's interesting. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't seen that. So the amount of regolith lost they're estimating uh to be in the tens of grams. Um, and what's really interesting is when they were discussing that, uh, they said that the regolith looks like cornflakes. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> flaky. What's really fascinating, we'll have a, um, a link to an image um, that the Wonder Idiot uh, pasted into our chat. That's, uh, that's Mike from the AGC Restoration Project um, that you'll probably hear, uh, hear me talking about on this show and tweeting about because it's really, really cool. And I had as of yet not watched the videos. Um, but Mike, uh, pointed out this, this video, um, that came from NavCam 2, um, of the, uh, the tag operation. And so it's a, it's a wider, uh, view of, uh, of the asteroid as they're coming in. And last week when we were getting ready to do the show, we were kind of confused about how long, um, the nitrogen, uh, blow through took and how long the sample head was in contact with the surface. And, and we kind of realized, Oh, the sample head was in contact with the surface longer than expected. And it turns out now, um, after reviewing their data, it looks like it sank into the surface by about half a meter, which is really crazy. We didn't know what the surface was, was going to look like when we designed this mission, as we talked about last week. And, you know, it turns out it's, it's closer to the uh, fairy castle end of the spectrum. And one of the team members um, said that if you were to stand on the surface of Bennu, you'd probably sink into about your knees or your, or your waist, um, depending <laughs> on how far it took for you to uh, come into contact with a large enough boulder to stop your descent. So Although I, I imagine it would take a long time to, in order for that to happen, right? With yes. that low, low yes. gravity. Plus, actually, plus actually, I don't know if it would because that means that you would have to have more density than the regolith, which you probably don't. It is a rubble pile. I could imagine that. I mean, I, you know, I, I actually, what are the rubble? You're, yeah, you're, you're, you're correct about, um, about density, but remember that this rubble pile is going to be less dense than sand because. Um, it's got so much, sp so many gaps inside of it that that you will actually be able to sink through it. I, I imagine, but I, I think this is such a wonderful little. It's it's almost analogous to how uh, the gas giants don't have a hard surface as we normally would think about it, or or we don't believe that they do. <laughs> um, and, and it's it's kind of interesting that you know our default way of thinking about the universe is you have. Uh, balls of rock and gas and they, you know, they have these hard boundaries. And in reality, you know, the atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere doesn't have a hard boundary. Uh, the gas giants probably don't have a hard boundary. The sun doesn't have a hard boundary. And now it looks like even rocky bodies don't always have a hard boundary. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's kind of cool. The, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. It's just this loosely held together pile and I'm trying to think of like I can kind of I don't know how to put it but I can kind of feel what it or I can get an idea of what that feels like to slap you know how it's something that just kind of you know completely dissociates and then it very slowly comes back together kind of mm -hmm. like maybe something underwater but I can't put my finger on what it is but I but I feel like I've done something like that before but I don't know where <laughs> but that's kind of what it looks like you know like it's just barely an asteroid I mean it is but it's really just 
a, a bunch of rocks that are stuck together. So I think this is a really good argument for the world not being a simulation because who in their right mind would decide would design <laughs> a simulation that required this many interactions to be calculated in a place where nobody's looking? And if you want those the hard numbers, it, it looks to me like it's about maybe a tenth or sorry, yeah, a tenth of a gram per cubic centimeter Oof. denser than a human body. So 1.1 grams per cubic versus 1.2. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. I mean, like, there, there, there's still, like, porous space, like, you know, all throughout the, you know, the yeah. asteroid is their understanding of it. And again, it's not that big, right? It's ha- about half a kilometer in size. And so you, you don't get that kind of, you know, increase in mm-hmm. density towards the center that you typically get, mm-hmm. you know, with yeah. bodies. All right. There you go. That's, that's your Osiris-Rex update. We'll pretty much... Uh, Wait to hear. Yeah, I think we're going to be quiet about Osiris Rex until it's closer to returning its sample, unless something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. This this was very exciting. Uh, good good couple of weeks here, um, getting ready for this event and getting to watch the the result of it. Let's do four shorts and sweets. Four short and sweets, whatever. Um, what's the first one, Dennis? <laughs> oh, first up, launch space to install debris collection payload on ISS. Launch Space Technologies Corporation recently announced a contract with Airbus to place their orbital debris collection and spacecraft shielding payload on Airbus's Bartolomeo platform on the station for 12 months. Equipped with sensors to record the impact, force, and orbital direction of debris, data collected by this Pathfinder will be used to develop the company's debris collection units, which are designed to orbit LEO and capture space junk ranging from 1 to 50 millimeters in size, too small to be tracked from the ground. The test on Bartolomeo is scheduled to begin in 2022. Cool. And next up, Ariane 6 needs additional funding. Due to COVID-19 and a technical issue concerning a launch tower cryogenic umbilical, the launch of Ariane 6 has been delayed. ESA has already confirmed earlier this year that the launch would slip to 2021. It is now asking participating European member states for an additional 230 million euros or $260 million, which would bring development costs to a total of 3.8 billion euros or $4.4 billion, and represents a 6% increase in development cost. ESA hopes to secure this additional funding in the next few months. Next, uh, Falcon 9 launch abort conclusion. After the GPS 304 launch was aborted at T minus two seconds on October 3rd, we've been waiting for details of what could have gone wrong. Two engines were pulled off the vehicle and sent back to testing, and crew one was delayed as well. It turns out that two engines gas generators had a 1 16th inch relief valve blocked by residual masking lacquer. The blockage resulted in higher than expected T-tab igniter pressures and a potential hard start. The red lacquer is used to protect some surfaces during anodization. The anodizing contractor appears to have made process changes that resulted in incomplete cleaning of the engine. By analyzing test stand data, SpaceX was able to identify three additional engines that had also suffered from the issue and pulled them from flight status. It sounds like the contractor got a stern talking to, but was not replaced. And finally, NASA faces tough choice due to SLS's slow progress. While the first SLS core is only weeks away from its green run test, the rate of production of the launch vehicle has been slow enough to force NASA to confront a difficult choice. With the third core scheduled to launch Artemis III, the first human mission to the moon in half a century, this has caused a problem for the Europa Clipper mission, which Congress has mandated to also fly on an SLS rocket. Both missions are aiming to launch in 2024, but only one SLS rocket is scheduled to be available at that time. 
Europa Clipper could be launched to Jupiter on a slower trajectory by a Delta IV Heavy or Falcon Heavy, but this would need to be resolved to Congress's mandate. NASA's current plans are to build the space probe, put it in storage, and wait. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have some winners with explanations, uh, which are Cy Kyle, Coaster Gallery, Ben Howard, and The Greek, and then a winner without an explanation, which would be Arik or Eric. In the clue was fiber optics trained on the ringed planet, which I figured had to do with telescopes. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. kind of the point. Yeah. Uh, all right. This week in spaceflight history is the 9th of November, 1967. It was the launch of Apollo 4. This was the first flight of a Saturn V, uh, also known as AS-501. It was NASA's first all-up test. Um, so an all-up test is a mission uh, that has no precursor like intermediary versions before you fly your final flight hardware. To be fair, the S-4B had already been flown on the Saturn 1B, well, as early as the Saturn 1B flight AS-201, uh, but there wasn't uh, an S-4B mid-flight or mid-mission restart uh, of the uh, the S-4B. So, it, it, you know, that that's kind of how you would you would not do an all-up test where you kind of take these intermediate steps. But, you know, for, for the first two stages, at least, it, it was the first time that we had done it. So on board this mission uh, were two payloads. Um, both of the payloads were precursors to the CSM and the LM, the, the lunar module. The CSM was a CSM Block 1, uh, serial number 17. Now, um, the Block 2 was designed for um, lunar orbit operations, and the Block 1 was designed for Earth orbit o- uh, operations. Um, it, it turns out that they never actually were able to fly a Block 1 with people inside. Um, that was supposed to be Apollo 1, and I think they're... I think Apollo 3, I don't remember if Apollo 3 was supposed to be crewed or uncrewed, but in any event, this was a Block 1, but it was like partially upgraded uh, to mimic a Block 2. Apollo uh, used this idea of an all-up test as a cost-saving measure, and that's all well and good until you start flying people. And so before they flew a Block 2, they wanted to test out some of the changes that were between the two different blocks uh, here on Apollo 4 when there weren't people on board. So there, there were four major uh, modifications that uh, that got applied to CSM-17. Um, they upgraded the umbilical that came up around um, the heat shield, specifically the, the docking mechanism, I believe, or the attachment mechanism to the command module. Um, they also tested out their brand new outward opening, uh, outward opening hatch. And this was actually pretty cool because the hatch, instead of having a window, had uh, like a materials test panel um, that they could use to test out some of their um, sealing materials and see how they did uh, in the space environment. They also tested out um, a new thermal coating or, or the new thermal coating that was uh, on the, the outside uh, or the, the top half of the command module. Um, and then they also did some antenna changes. Notably, um, they moved the scimitar antenna from the command module to the service module. Then the, the other uh, piece of, of payload here was LTA-10R. That's Lunar Test Article 10R. And I I don't know. I kind of like the LTAs. They're, 
They're like very high fidelity mock-ups, but they're still mock-ups. Um, so this had a, a quote unquote flight type descent module, um, which meant that it had, um, actual fuel or actual propellant tanks, uh, that were filled with, uh, water glycol and freon to simulate propellant slosh, which is pretty neat. Um, <laughs> but it didn't have landing gear. Um, and then the uh, ascent module was made out of aluminum and it was like ballasted to have the correct center of mass. Um, but it, uh, other than that, it was it was just a chunk of aluminum. So the clue this week uh, talked about fiber optics and those are referring to fiber optic cameras. Now, I'm going to say this before I get too deep in here. It turns out Apollo 4 didn't actually have any fiber optic cameras installed. Um, and I totally got that wrong. And I'm so glad uh, that other people got it wrong and uh, nobody else noticed it because this was actually really, really hard for me to nail down. We, we've all seen those wonderful videos uh, from engineering cameras on board the the Saturn V, and, and actually the, the Saturn I also had them, uh, but these wonderful videos of um, staging and, you know, the, the really great video that we now take for granted in launch webcasts. It turns out not a lot of people know exactly what cameras were what and which vehicles they were installed in. And I just about ran myself ragged <laughs> trying to nail down exactly <laughs> what was what and what came from what mission. So like I said, uh, most of the time when you see these, uh, it, it's attributed to um, like Apollo 11, right? Or Apollo 12. And, and it's not. Um, most of the onboard footage that you see is from Apollo 4 and Apollo 6. And it turns out that Apollo 8 also had uh, onboard cameras, um, but they weren't able to recover the footage. So uh, all of the uh, uh, the Saturn 1 uh, flights that, that carried these cameras, they, they carried uh, six cameras. Two were TV cameras um, that beamed footage home. Um, so it's actually, it's actually really cool. So there were, um, four views of the S1C, the, the first stage, but it's four views using two cameras, which I think is lovely. So those two cameras were each fed by two, uh, remote lenses, um, mounted on the ends of fiber optic cables, right? So they, um, send the video back through the fiber optic cable. It goes through, um, a, a T joint kind of thing that smushes the video together and projects it onto the TV camera sensor, uh, split half and half. And what's really cool about those, uh, remote lenses is that the camera lens is actually sighted through quartz windows and those quartz windows were circular and the windows rotated and had soot scrapers so they could keep the window clear. Um, and I think that's very neat. Um, and then, uh, the two, so four views going into two cameras and the two cameras uh, had their signals multiplexed and transmitted on a single telemetry link. And then they were decoded uh, on the ground. Um, so that's two cameras. Then there were four additional ones. Two of them were mounted inside the S2C skirt. So the second stage, um, one was mounted high, one was mounted low, and they were mounted on opposite sides of the vehicle. Um, and those are the most famous views that you see where you get to see staging, uh, an ignition, and then the, 
release of that skirt and it falls away and and starts tumbling as it goes through the um the rocket exhaust it's it's really fantastic so that's two of four then they had two additional views um which were inside the locks tank and those cameras also used fiber optic cables um the cameras were on the outside well you know close to the skin of the vehicle and then the lenses were able to peek inside uh, the locks tank and those were also pretty fun because they didn't use steady illumination they actually had strobed illumination which i think allowed my, my guess is that it allowed them to fake a higher frame rate so that you get better uh, resolution of of the movement uh, of the liquid oxygen mm. um, so what's notable about having those cameras on fiber optic cable is, you know, the, the two cameras on the, um, on the S1C first stage, those are beaming footage home. The four cameras in the S2C all were film cameras. And, um, I, I think it's, it's relatively famous at this point, the idea of having a camera that feeds film into a canister and then you eject the canister um, and, and you're able to recover that canister on its own. One of the things that I, I didn't know, obviously the canisters fall through the atmosphere on parachutes, but what I didn't know is that they actually used balutes, <laughs> a, a very early use of a balut. Um, and then once they land, they uh, cut the balut off and then deploy a second a uh, balloon that allows that that has um a radio transmitter and that can you know bob up above the surface and that allows them to actually recover it so uh four film canisters um uh, and these guys were flown uh on the S1 rocket as well and the first S1 flight was sort of what i was um impressed by uh and what made me choose the clue that i did that that was actually one of the first practical applications of fiber optics was was using them on a rocket which is just so cool mm. yeah. um and so apollo 4 didn't have any of those uh of those fiber optics like i said it just had the two cameras inside the s2c skirt and yeah i i screwed that one up but to be fair this was really really hard to figure out exactly uh <laughs> where these guys were so in the show notes i'll have a lot of sources that i was able to uncover um and it turns out actually some of the best sources turned out to be um press kits uh believe it or not um the press kits actually had a lot of this information and uh, you know you'd think that that would do a better job of getting this information out into the public consciousness um, but yeah, I, I looked at forum after forum where people were scratching their heads trying to figure this stuff out. Um, you know, with uh, with Google improving, I, I was able to figure this out in, a, in an hour or two. All right, so let's talk about the actual mission. They launched into a roughly 185 kilometer circular orbit inclined by about 32 degrees. They uh, stayed in this insertion orbit for two orbits and then they did um, a simulated translunar injection burn, um, which raised their apoapsis up to 17,000 kilometers. And what's really cool is that they uh, did both a TLI 
and also a deorbit burn at the same time. So they uh, put their apoapsis up at 17,000 and then put their periapsis at negative 81 kilometers. Um, so you're guaranteed to uh, not have space debris. Uh, a couple minutes after that fake TLI, uh, the CSM separated and it did two burns um, to uh, first increase its apoapsis. And then I guess technically it also increased its apoapsis, but it was never going to come back around to it. So um, both of these uh, increased its reentry speed um, so they could get um, closer to the environment they'd experience on a, on a lunar return. And that is basically what we ended up doing decades later on EFT-1, the, the exploration flight test, the first flight of Orion. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, a very logical way to do things, but it's, uh, it's kind of satisfying to see uh, echoes, uh, echoes of the past happening. So before it re-entered, um, it did a, a little bit of experimentation. Um, remember that crew hatch that they were testing out and the, and the materials. So what they did was they oriented the vehicle. So that was in shadow. Um, so the sloped upper cone of the command module was parallel to rays of light coming from the sun to allow it to do this cold soak. And it, there was a, from, from what I was able to discern, there was a little bit of material shrinkage, I guess, um, that the seal didn't perform perfectly, but um, it, it performed well enough. I don't think that they actually had to do any updates. Um, and they uh, didn't experience, you know, the outward opening door blasting off into space and <laughs> everything went well. Uh, they were also able to do some photography looking back at Earth. Uh, there'll probably be a, a photo in the show notes of that if I don't already have too many photos. Um, and then they did their normal uh, uh, double skip reentry. Um, they actually came in, uh, I think, a, a thousand meters per second faster than they had planned, but it was within their acceptable parameters. Um, uh, the reason for that, I, I believe it was the second burn actually um, went on longer than they than they had planned. Hmm. Um, but they they got back home, and so. You know, the, this idea of doing um, all-up testing really paid off in that they were able to do Apollo 4. And it's, you know, this this first major flight of, of uh, Saturn V, and they were able to do all these additional milestones all in one, all in one shot. Um, and that, that got them ready for uh, Apollo 7, which was uncrewed, or Apollo 6, which was uncrewed, and then Apollo 7, which was uh, in low Earth orbit. Uh, and Apollo seven, you know, had, had people on board. So I, I'm kind of surprised that it took me this long to get around to doing Apollo four as a this week in space flight, mm -hmm. but, uh, it was a, it was a very fun, deep dive. And, and I like when, when something about a mission is, is so small, but interests me enough that it takes up <laughs> most of the conversation. <laughs> this is a mission that I don't know much about. Like I kind of, it just kind of, mm -hmm. I, I don't know why, but I always kind of skip Apollo 4, you know, like I know right. the, like the other milestones, <laughs> but I don't think about that one quite as much. Yeah. Colin, Colin in the chat says, imagine if the first stage had failed, that would have been a, mm. a you know, a big loss. You could do all this work and have all these mm -hmm. things downstream. And yeah, you know, uh, David, you saying that I would love to have a giant poster uh, that has all of the Apollo missions um, and just, you know, describing what each one did, because, you know, once we <laughs> got past the, the first lunar landing, there wasn't much else to do, right? You, you get to, mm -hmm. um, uh, you get to put a 
bigger engine bell on the descent stage. You get to bring along a, a rover. You get to do longer rope. But like, mm-hmm. I love the progression. I think that Apollo 8 was really the big, I mean, that one was like, you know, a big mission that most people don't know about, you know, as far yeah. as the general public. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. How many people know that we went to the moon before we landed? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Twice. Tw- yeah, twice. Uh, <laughs> went to the moon, went to orbit around the moon, and then finally got around the landing. So next week, the date range we have is the 10th through the 17th of November. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us for what that might be? Indeed I do. Next week in 1982, it was a lovely trip, but we were stuck indoors the whole time. So something to do with rain. I don't know. Um, Yeah. <laughs> and once again, that is the 10th through the 17th. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on then to upcoming spaceflight events. Just got three. All right. Uh, Atlas V is flying Enroll 101. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think we need to talk too much about Enroll payloads, uh, but this is an Atlas V in the 551 configuration, um, and it's flying uh, the new uh, Gem 63s, uh, which is, is kind of cool. This mission is going to be launching uh, on November 3rd at 2258 hours UTC. Uh, that's uh, 5.58 p.m. on the East Coast, and it's flying out of Slick 41 at Cape Canaveral. And then next up is on November 5th, and that is the launch of a Falcon 9 with GPS-3, and that is launching SV-04. This is a U.S. Air Force third-generation navigation satellite for the GPS system. And this was actually delayed uh, in part due to range turnaround limitations. And I think was was this the one that was delayed also mm-hmm. because of, uh, yeah. The the red nail polish problem? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I guess now that they fixed it, they just use some nail polish remover or something, <laughs> something similar. Um, that's all ready to go. So yeah, that's launching now on November 5th. Uh, and the launch window is 2324 through 2339 UTC. And that's launching from Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral. And then finally, as far as uh, launches this week, uh, we've got on November 7th a uh, PSLV in the PSLV DL um, configuration, uh, which will be launching EOS-1, an Earth uh, observation satellite for ISRO, uh, along with a few uh, other uh, satellites uh, will be brought along. Um, in particular, uh, four CLEO scouting mission radio surveillance nanosats and a uh, few lemur tube cubesats. And so um, this version, the PSLV DL, has two strap-on rocket boosters, and it's already been delayed uh, going as far back as December of last year, but uh, you can keep an eye out for that at, uh, again, November 7th at 0932 UTC or 432 AM Eastern uh, on the USC board. So, And uh, as is typical, we'll be launching out of Satish Dhawan Space Center. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, cool. So time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 AM Pacific, 12 PM Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission badges, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for orbital podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. While you're at it, join us Saturday the 7th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Discord, where we'll play Among Us. 
Cool. All right. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.